I'm Michael Levitin, and this is episode nine of The Tell. So one thing uh, about being close to me is you're you're very likely to have to endure me telling a story about you at some point. <laughs> um, I was raised in a family that wasn't into secrets or privacy really at all, that we just told each other everything. And so it's my natural impulse to just tell anything I think is interesting. And it can be upsetting and destructive. Sometimes people feel betrayed. I said something about them uh, or I tell a story that is unflattering to all and everybody hates me. These things are real. Telling stories is dangerous. (laughs) Um, There are consequences. So, uh, you know, I I encounter people who have great stories but are, are private. You know, they'll say, I would tell it to you and a couple other people, but I don't want to tell a room full of strangers. Uh, And in this case, privacy is my enemy. Uh, So some people will tell their stories to a room of people, but don't want it on a podcast because then it could be searched. You know, the people in it might hear it. This is probably a good idea. I mean, these people are being less reckless than I am. They're probably being respectful. It's admirable, Um, but still it sometimes drives me crazy. Uh, So this episode has some particularly personal and maybe potentially dangerous stories. Uh, Alan Del Rio Ortiz tells a family story, uh, and I'm moved that he would he would tell it. Um, and we have a story from someone who asked that he be kept anonymous. Um, he, he has to be referred to as Mr. X. So we have a story <laughs> from Mr. X as well. He's on first. Uh, and then there's going to be a, a live performance by Adam Green. So enjoy these stories <laughs> that You almost didn't get to hear. This is episode nine of The Tell. Uh, If anyone in here uh, works for I'd like to ask you to uh, recuse yourself right now because it's a pretty incriminating story. (laughs) Okay, we're all good. All right. Um, I've been working uh, as a freelance filmmaker for the good part of a decade uh, here in New York. And it's not always easy to get your clients to pay you for work. Uh, I don't know if you guys have, have had problems like this. I'm sure, I'm sure anyone that, you know, you don't have to raise your hands. But yeah, all the, any freelancers in the, in the group, in the crowd here would probably understand. I guess, what was it, maybe two years ago, I was asked by a uh, friend of a friend to make a, a to, to work with a, a, a client, a new client on a fashion film. Uh, I'm not a really big fan of the fashion industry, as, as you'll come to understand. Uh, and I usually wouldn't take a job like this for someone, from someone I don't know, but he, uh, I was really, desperate. I needed the money. I hadn't worked in a couple months. Uh, I was just sitting at home and I got this call and I thought I needed to do it or else what am I doing with my life? So I say yes. He offers me $1,000. Again, I, I, I really don't, I usually don't like to inflate like, uh, like my kind of worth as a, as a filmmaker, but I, I, I usually ask a bit more of myself for clients like that because it would probably take, I thought it would take four or five days of work at least. But I said yes nonetheless and I meet up with the guy and we end up shooting for a whole day. He's giving me very little direction. 
I do very basic coverage, shoot the room, and we call it a day. In the next few weeks, I'm ingesting the footage, I'm editing it at a, at a leisurely pace, and I send him a cut, and he seems to be pleased with it. He sends me an email, he says, okay, looks great, just let me send to the client and make sure they're okay with it. The client receives the video, they hate it. And I know when I do a shitty job, I fall asleep at work sometimes. Um, but I knew that I really, I, 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 did a, I did an okay job here. I really know, I, like, I, 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 I know when to fold and I know when to fight. So I say, okay, fine, I mean, we're out of the budget of the initial thing, but I'll continue to re-edit this. The re-edit goes on for another three or four weeks, back and forth, like every few days. It's excruciating. He keeps dangling the threat of non-payment in front of me if I don't complete the project until after about, I don't know, two, three months, I say, look, I, I'm gonna send you this footage and you're gonna work with it, I can't do this anymore. And he's like, okay. I send him the footage, I don't hear from him, and I don't hear from him. <laughs> I try calling him, he changes his number, he doesn't respond to any emails, I tried calling his work, places he's worked for in the past, nothing works. He's not responding to me whatsoever. This is burrowed into my head and this is the only thing I'm thinking about. So I decide to try to get him uh, to go on court TV. Uh, <laughs> because it's a relatively small amount of money, you know, uh, for, for jobs like this. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, you, you know you, sometimes you get a free plane ticket or something. It's nice. My career on Court TV actually started when I was 16 years old. Um, I, was, I, I was playing in the street with a friend and uh, some, neighborhood, some neighborhood guy, who was about 25, came up and asked us if we wanted to be his witnesses on the People's Court. And... We weren't doing anything that day, so we said, yeah, sure. So we cooked up a story, and they, I was living in, I grew up in Long Island. They drove us in a, in a, in a limousine from Long Island, drove us all the way to Times Square. And I made up this preposterous story that they ended up airing. Um, I made a complete ass of myself, and she told us to sit down almost immediately, but it was, it was, I didn't, it made me realize how easy it was to get onto court TV. Um, now how court TV works, uh, the, the allure of court TV is that, uh, and uh, I mean, this is, nothing, this is nothing new. I mean, I have friends that have, uh, that have been on court TV as well. Like, I, I've, 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 I've read about it. This, is, this, is, uh, this seems to be a hustle that other people are familiar with. But I, I had a different score to settle here. Um, but yeah, the way court TV works is that, um, <laughs> let's say I'm, I'm suing you for $1,000, and you agree to go on court TV with me. You don't have to pay me the $1,000 if I win. The court show pays $1,000, and we both get appearance fees. Um, so that's how they get a lot of 
that's how they got a lot of people to come on the show. You know, you don't have to hire actors, you don't have to hire SAG people. It's just this this reality. But you're just getting these really desperate people to come and air their dirty laundry on you know daytime television. Um, so I went to Judge Joe Mathis, and I I I, I submitted the case. He Judge Joe Mathis got back to me, and uh, they were interested in the case. Uh, but we tried to get in touch with my client, and he would not respond as well. So I was like, oh, fuck. And at that point, I realized that this, this was, I, 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 it was greater than just $1,000. It was greater than just this, this, this shitty fashion film that this guy produced. I, I, I really wanted to, to make an artistic point here, that you don't always have to like what you make. Um, but as long as contractually you're within the uh, you know the limits of the contract, you know then you should be paid for your work. Um, so what we decided to do was like I, I decided to dramatically reenact the entire case uh, with my good friend, um, and completely remove the original client from the from the equation. Uh, so what we did was we drew up a fake contract that said that my friend was hiring me to make a fashion film. We produced a fake fashion film. We went to like the Williamsburg Bridge or whatever and like put my uh, handsome friend of ours in some like in some clean shoes and you know whatever. And uh, and it was like a three minute you know piece of shit. Um, so. <laughs> Uh, because Joe Mathis was out of the question, I went to this this other show called which was uh, I don't know if you guys have seen it. My grandma watches it all the time. It's a it's one of the most popular court shows on daytime TV. Uh, it's it's like the Supreme Court of court shows, um, and uh, they film it in Los Angeles. So I I I I thought maybe you know maybe this could be a nice vacation too. So. I reach out to them, they bite, I send them the fake film, the contract, all the, all, all, you know, all, all the evidence, what have you, that they're asking for. And they're like, okay, great, here's your plane ticket. Uh, <laughs> um, here's the date of the screen, here, here's the date of the production. Uh, this is what you'd need to do. Here's some cab vouchers. They gave us everything and like, they overnighted a FedEx package to us. So uh, the date eventually came, and uh, we actually had to fly separately. They bought two separate plane tickets for us because we were supposed to be fighting. So although we were roommates and best friends, uh, we both went to JFK on the subway on the same day and had separate flights to Los Angeles. They were staying in Pasadena, or, or I was staying in Pasadena. They were staying like near, more near Universal Studios. Uh, and and the, the other guy, who was the model. Um, so, <laughs> we get there. Actually, sorry, I'm gonna rewind for a second. There's a crucial element here that, uh, that ended up fucking up the, um, that ended up fucking up their production. I, uh, one of my first jobs out of college was for, as a, pri uh, for a pri uh, private investigator. And it, it was like, it was like the, I found it on free, uh, or on a, et cetera, Craigslist. And I, I, I became familiar with all the, a lot of spy cameras and stuff like that. So right before I went, I really wanted to make a film about it. Um, 
because I, I do a lot of personal kind of documentary stuff, uh, you know, uh, as, as kind of a hobby. And I went to this spy town, uh, this, this this spy shop in Midtown, and got a, 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 a Thai camera, uh, a little camera that was in a tie. <laughs> and my friend said, "Look, John, this is a terrible idea. The stakes are too high. They're flying us all the way out there. We signed a contract saying that we did wouldn't do exactly what you're doing." This is a really terrible. Uh, this is a really terrible idea. But I still stuck with it, and we flew out to Los Angeles. Um, so the day of the production, I get it's 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 excruciating. If if I don't, if anyone's done anything like this before, it's they 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 put you in in they quarantine you in different rooms for hours. Uh, just just shuttling you from place to place before you finally get to the production, and it was extremely lonely. I was staying in a hotel by myself, um, just like, just just really uh, trying trying to reconsider just like what I'm doing with my life and like why, like why am I not looking for a career? You know, starting a career. Um, I'm here, yeah, suing my best friend, um, but. Uh, we finally get into the we finally get into the studio, and it's uh, you know all these extras, all these lights. It's really exciting. All the you know, the and the uh, the sound guy, you know, you put, they put a lavalier on you when you uh, when you uh, do a show like that. And I was trying to avoid having the sound guy do it because I know he would have felt this bulge that was a camera in my tie. Uh, so I put it on myself, but then the sound guy had to readjust it. And as he's readjusting the tie, this just this look of terror in his eyes. Like I'll never forget it. He just he he feels this bulge in my tie. Seconds away from 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 us beginning the beginning the recording, he just looks at me with like this dead stare. And then the bell rings, and I'm just like, oh, bye. Uh, we. Uh, when I, but when I was waiting in the room right before the, uh, right before we went in, the uh, one of the producers told me that they recut the fake fashion film that I made. They didn't know it was fake. They recut the fake fashion film. They cut it down till they cut like two minutes out of it, and put whole new music on it that was royalty free. <laughs> and and asked if I asked if that was okay. They also gave me like a bunch of cash for per diem at that point, so I said sure. Um, but it, you know, if this was a real case, that would have been psychotic. That, that would have been absurd. You know, this, this is one. This is the only piece of evidence I have. <laughs> and it's 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 like the, it's and we're judging the quality of this art. You know, the contract is written in such a way. Anyway, um, so we're shooting the show. The sound guy is glaring at me the entire time. I'll save you the details of the actual show because maybe you can look it up or something. Um, it's called Go. That's the name of the episode. <laughs> and uh, I right when, so and, and I win. I win the thousand dollars. They they judge they they judge in favor of me. Um, they 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 thought the video was was okay enough, um, even with the edit. And as I'm trying to leave. I'm trying to take the lava off myself and just get out as fast as I can because I know the sound guy has it out for me and he maybe maybe word to spread that there's something fishy in my tie. And he com he's, he comes in up to me immediately, grabs my tie, is just like, oh no no I got it I got it, don't worry. And my heart starts racing. 
And he's like, oh, that's a, that's a really nice tie. And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> and he's like, you know, where, uh, I, where'd you get that tie? I was like, oh, I don't know. You know, it's just, it's, you know, my, one of my roommates, he just, you know, he didn't have one, you know. He's like, oh, I, let, me, let me see who makes that tie. And then he turns it around, hopefully to try to reveal some kind of contraption that was visible, but it was hidden deep inside the tie, so it would take, so you have to unsew it. Um, but he looks at the brand and he's like, oh yeah, I think I know who makes that tie. Which, I looked it up before, it was no tie, they weren't associated, the brand wasn't associated with a spy company, it was associated with, it was just some generic Japanese tie brand. Um, so then I, there, I there, you know, there's a wave of relief, and I'm going to leave, and then the, there's a PA that's, uh, I'm about to walk out the door just into daylight, you know, I've been inside all day. And this PA is like, hold on, don't, do not go anywhere. I was like, oh shit, this really doesn't end here, does it? I'm really gonna have to pay them back. Because there was a clause in the contract that said if I did anything like this that I would have to pay them, if we were colluding or if I was doing a recording, that I would owe them the cost of the entire production. Which you know could they could throw any number at you, um, and I'm just like, oh, I'm sorry. I just I really want to I, you know I just want to go out for a smoke or something. It's just like, dude, do not do not go anywhere. And I'm really sweating at that point. I'm waiting for like four or five minutes, just like you know, hands in my pockets, my fingers moving around. And then finally, I'm just like, look, I I, I really need to go out. It's like, okay, hold on. Yeah, you can go out now. We were just waiting for you know, the defendant to get in the cab. We didn't want you guys to go out together. <laughs> it's like, oh, thank God. Um, so we fly back to New York. Um, the episode airs. Uh, I thought it was pretty funny. Um, and we go through this whole elaborate thing just to get this money back. But you know, we, we, all, we all split the money collectively. Um, but we were telling, I, I was with at a coffee shop and, um, we were telling the story to the, the guy that owned it, one of the baristas. And he's like, oh, that's really fucked up. I can't believe this guy didn't pay you for your, this guy didn't pay you for the job, uh, you know, the job you did. And I was like, yeah, I know. And he's like, what's, uh, you know, what's his Instagram? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I mean, sure. Like, here's, this, is what, this is what he looks like. This is an Instagram, just in case, you know, you want to, like, warn anyone else. But then the barista just starts commenting on all of his photos. <laughs> like, you coward, you need to pay people for your hard work. <laughs> Slime. Yeah, just like all this, this really nasty stuff. <laughs> but, uh... Then it, it, it was it was a it was a miracle. After it, this 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 whole th took the, this took the better part of a year. I haven't heard this from this guy for nearly a year, and this whole drama has unfolded it, during his silence. Within an hour of the Instagram attack, <laughs> he emails me directly. Says, "Call off your dogs. I'll pay. I'll I'll, I'll wire you the money right now." <laughs> So more than anything, it, I tried to do this. I tried to take the high road in a way. <laughs> I, 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 tried to, I, I tried to do this, you know, 
you know, as as you should in 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 a court in a court of law. <laughs> but all it took was the most juvenile gesture to finally get my money back. Okay. Thank Um, so my mother had my brother when she was about 18 years old. This was in Monterey, Mexico, when, uh, you know, you weren't supposed to do things like that. Um, she, they had a shotgun wedding, and her and, you know, this guy, and then after a couple of years, they just got divorced. There was no love there. It wasn't anything real, which is another thing you're really not supposed to do. I think it was a small kind of Catholic community, and it was all kind of bad. Um, and then she started sleeping with a married man, and that is how she got pregnant with me. <laughs> and, uh, and then she decided to move to Dallas, which is where I was born, Dallas, Texas. Um, so yeah, we grew up in like a fatherless home. It was like me, my brother, and my mother. And of course, my brother's my half-brother, but we were all really cool. You know, he was 10 years older than me, so um, we kind of had like a good good thing going. He was kind of a father figure. My mom had a bunch of boyfriends. Some of them were cool or some of them sucked, but it wasn't ever like, you know, a thing. I think a lot of people ask me like, what was that like? How did you grow up? Are you okay? And I think that it's, uh, I think it's cool, but um, I think, it, I always tell them, I think it would have been a lot harder if you kind of grow up in this like really tight household and then all of a sudden you go through like a really horrible divorce. Like if I knew my dad really well and then he left when I was seven and my whole like world was upside down, I think that would have been a lot harder and I think a lot of more people have to deal with something like that. For me, it was just always really normal. It was like my mom, my brother and me and it was chill. The thing that was a little bit weird was that I think because my mom kind of grew up in this sort of small community that a lot of people sort of, there's a lot of people in my life know about my father or have met him or know him pretty well. Like, my brother remembers him really well, I think. A lot of family members know him. My mom's friends remember him. And just without any kind of variation, everyone who's like, especially growing up, they're just like, oh my God, you're exactly like your father. Like, the way you look, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you do this and this, your good looks, your charm, um, all, that, all that kind of nonsense. It was just like, just constantly being compared to this man that, like, didn't exist. You know, as far as I knew, I didn't, I didn't really... I didn't really know what was going on. So it was always a little bit weird, especially when it came from my mother, because I think she kind of did a little bit too much, and it kind of got me the sense. I kind of knew without really like knowing that she was still you know, in love with him. Um, I did have one picture of him. Uh, my mother had it amongst her things. It wasn't like a secret or anything like that. She would show it to me, and it was like, this is your father, and I would look at it. I remember trying to like see if I had any of those sort of like resemblance that everybody made such a big deal about. Like, do I have his eyes? Do I have his chin? Do I have his face? Uh, he's like in, a, in the photo, he's like in a study. He's like holding a pen. He's like trying not to pose. He's kind of posing, which is like something that I would do, I guess. But uh, <laughs> um, yeah, he just looks like some dude. I like looked at it and I looked at it and I just couldn't see any, I just, I really honestly don't see any of the resemblances. Um, so, I always kind of chalked it up to like, what can you really tell from a photograph? I'm sure if I met him, if I knew him, it would be a different story. Um, another person in my life who would always compare me to him was my father's sister. Uh, so that is my aunt, and my mom and her grew up together. 
and she was always in my life, and uh, to this day, I'm still in touch with her kids. They're the only people in, they're only people on my father's side that I know. And when I was about 16 years old, she died. Um, a cop ran a red light, crashed into her car, and killed her. It was like this horrible, really sudden thing. Really fucked up my mom. It was like a, it was a big deal. But despite how close we were, and despite all that kind of thing, I didn't want to go to the funeral because I knew my dad was going to be there, and I just thought it was a little bit intense. You know, I think my mother was really pressuring me to go, and I didn't know what the game was. I didn't want to be part of this like Game of Thrones sort of situation where I didn't know if she like wanted to be like back together with him or if she just really wanted me to like have a relationship with him. But I just didn't think it was appropriate. But when you're like 16 or whatever, you don't really have a voice, and uh, so I had to go. I went. I went to the funeral. Um, the funeral itself was really cool. I know that's weird to say, but it was like, it was like a Mexican funeral. Like, I don't know if it's typical. I haven't been to a lot of funerals, but there were like mariachis playing. There was singing. There was dancing. We were drinking tequila. I was like 16. I was wasted. It was like really fun. It was like a big party, and I like people were crying. And it was sad, but it was also like really cool. And I, you know, I would like to go. My friends are here. Please take me like that. We like we took her. We took her. Uh, this was on the border because she lived at like Brownsville or like kind of like on the border between Texas and Mexico. And we like took her ashes and we like walked them across the border in like a procession. It was really special. It was a really nice day. Um, but anyway, I saw my dad kind of like walk in through like the other room. Like he was like kind of walking over, and he saw me and I saw him and he's like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like what up, dog? And I, and I kind of gave him like a yeah, what's up? And that was it. I I didn't want to like, I didn't know whether I should like go up to him or not. I felt super intimidated. Like, I didn't know if he wanted me there. I didn't know if he knew that I was going to be there. It was just, like, a, obviously, like, a pretty awkward situation. Um, and I had to assume that he had some of the same feelings about me. Like, for all he knew, I probably hated the guy or something. He, like, for all he knew, I was really angry and didn't want to see him. Or, I, don't, I don't really know what the dynamic was, but I think, it was, I think it was pretty intense for both of us. So we just kind of, we just kind of, like, did our own thing at the funeral, and... This is maybe the most embarrassing and ridiculous part, but uh, I picked up an acoustic guitar. <laughs> we were playing like I was doing like Beatles songs. I had to play like a George Harrison or something. I don't know. It was like I was 16. I was drunk. Like please, like, I'm sorry. Okay, leave me alone. Um, I was cool, and um, <laughs> it was horrible. So I'm like strumming, I'm jamming, on, I'm wailing on those strings, and. Uh, and <laughs> My dad, like, sits, my, my pops, he sits, like, right in front of me. Like, he just kind of, like, sits down. There's a group of us. And, fuck, I wish I could tell you there was, like, this big moment, but it was just so fucking underwhelming. Uh, <laughs> he kind of sits down, and he, we just kind of chit-chat about, like, the weather or something. I honestly don't remember what was said, but it was, like, maybe lasted two minutes. And I didn't get any of this, like, legacy of charm and and humor and good looks and dashing, lighting up the room. It was just some like kind of chubby dude. I mean, I know, but like he was just kind of like some bro. You know, it was just, I, I just didn't get it. To be fair, his sister just died super tragically in a horrible accident. So he probably wasn't in the mood to like meet his bastard child or whatever. But, uh, <laughs> but it was like, it was a thing. Um, <laughs> so, Back at the hotel room, I'm like, I'm like 
hanging out with my brother and we're talking about how special and crazy the whole night was and how beautiful it was. And of course, he, he's like, isn't it crazy how you're exactly like your father? Like, isn't it crazy how identical you guys are? And it just drove me fucking insane because I, again, I just couldn't see it. And I realized that like, all these people can't be wrong. You know, like the, I am the one that doesn't see it clearly. But yeah, I never saw him again after that. That was the only time I ever, I ever ran into him or I ever talked to him. We, uh, I found out later, <laughs> kind of randomly that, uh, so my mom just kind of like drops this bombshell about how she had secretly been sleeping with my dad up until I was like 11 years old. And like, no one told me. She's like, oh, I thought you knew. Like, no, I didn't know, man. Like, <laughs> like no, no one told me that shit. But uh, she's drunk. She gets like, hey, you guys should all meet her. She's crazy. Um, um, and yeah, so like the, this whole time, he was like married to this other woman. Mom was like sleeping with her for like over a fucking decade. And then uh, I found out also later that around the time of the funeral, I don't remember if it was before or if it was after, but uh, he divorced his wife after my mom had stopped seeing him, after they stopped seeing each other. My father divorced his wife and then got remarried to some like 20-year-old, some like really young girl. And the wedding date was on my mother's birthday, which is so brutal, <laughs> so fucking crazy. And so... It's just, I don't know, that, it's kind of been this like, weird overshadowing thing in my entire life because, not because I missed him or it, was, it wasn't any kind of these like, detachment issues. It was just more because I was always compared to this person that I never really saw myself. All my experiences with him had nothing to do with me. He didn't seem anything like me. He didn't talk anything like me. At least that's not what I saw. What I did see was he was kind of a shit. You know, he's kind of like a bad dude. And... I don't know how much I want to like confess to y'all right now, but like I'm also like not the greatest guy. Like I've like cheated a lot, I've like lied a lot, I've like been a bad guy, and like I'm scared of commitment and like all these like fucking things. And so it's like a Greek kind of curse, you know? Like I don't know, like I I I, I spent a whole life like trying to stay away from this person that I feel like I am not, and then you like cause the plague of Thebes or something. Like I I don't I just I don't want to be like this guy, but we all are we are our parents to some degree, and it's just horrible. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know what to do. To this day, I still struggle about like whether or not I should reach out to him, if I should kind of like get to know him, and therefore get to know myself. But it all just seems so crazy. I'm like old. He's old. He's about to die, and I just feel. I mean, I don't know, but I feel like <laughs> I feel like if I I feel like reaching out to him would only be because like I should do it, like I would regret not doing it, but that's not like really a reason to do something. Uh, I just, uh, honestly, I mean, I'll leave it with this. I don't, I don't even know if I know his name. Things are not so horrible. Something died for all time When I saw you conspiring To never lift a finger Once you were my manager Then 
my passenger Different highs, different lines Till no soul would reshape you again But your hold came in at a loss And the ecstasy is worn off Something died for all time When I saw you conspiring To never lift a finger Something died for all time When I saw you conspiring To never lift a finger Adam Green with a live performance of his song Never Lift a Finger um, and before that first story of the episode was from the anonymous Mr. X who we all hope will avoid legal repercussions for telling the story um, and then you heard a story from Alan Del Rio Ortiz um, the next live installment of the tell is at the Jane Hotel Ballroom Sunday July 23rd if you want to find out about how to see this in person you can go to thetellstories.com uh, the music playing below me right now is an, yet another version of our theme song written by a fool. Um, this time, uh, we're going to have Shilpa Ray singing it. Um, it's going to after I finish talking. <laughs> um, but uh, this band, the All-Star Tell Band, involves Matt Botter on horns, Ian Underwood on bass, John Coward on keyboards, uh, me on electric guitar, and Chris Egan on drums. And I want to thank, as always, Gabriel Galvin for co-producing the podcast and Natalia Schween for co-producing the live series. Um, thanks for listening. This is episode nine of The Tell. Baby, I like a story, a story you won't tell. But I witnessed how it unspools. It's brilliant because it's written by
dance on a stool It's brilliant cause it's really light 